somewhere around verse 14 or a little bit beyond last week. And, and so it's, a, it's an interesting expression that he has here where he talks about the fools who walk in darkness. Um, and, and how, and I wish, um, I wish Jeff was here so I could pull out that word from the king. Nobody has a King James here, right? Yeah, that's right. That's why I'm looking at you going, I, okay, no one has a King James. Okay, um, could you, when you get a chance, just signal at me, go ahead and read verse 14, because um, it's the word that I wanted to pull out um, from there, which I think is an interesting translation. And, uh, but it's the word perceived in the New King James. I believe that, um, uh, I'm trying to find it here in the New American Standard. The same fate is what it says in the New American Standard. Go ahead and read 14 for us, please. So it's, it says perceived also. Interesting. No. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think earlier uh, the, the word perceived was uh, translated differently. It must have been a different verse. Um, but I think it's the, same, it's the same Hebrew words, the word yada, Y-A-D-A. We didn't really get this far last week. Um, or he did, actually. And it's the idea of knowing knowledge intimately. Um, or this idea of, of having this knowledge that really, really goes beyond simply reading it in a book or hearing it from another person. It's something that you have experienced. Uh, and again, it, it goes in line kind of with this idea of, of gnosis in the Greek or from the word prognosko, which means to know experientially uh, in the Greek as well. Um, so, then he says in his heart, verse 15, so I'm, I'm kind of getting some momentum going here. Uh, he says in his heart, this idea of, he's saying this within the quietness and the privacy of his own counsel. And, and um, part of it is, a lot of commentators feel like this section, he's talking about both the wise and the fool, they end up with the same fate. What would that be? They end up dead. They end up dying. Whether you're a wise person and whether you're a foolish person, that your, your fate's the same. And so he, he's kind of wrestling with this idea of um, trying to make some sense of that. Now, my thought is that's wisdom speaking. Because the fool doesn't think about these kind of things in my mind. You know, the fool is, you know, I, I mean, I've talked to older people and much older than anybody here who they talk as if they're going to live forever. As if, and it's just, it's like, you know, it, it's almost unexplainable. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of a guy who pastored a church in Southern California who made no plans for his succession. The guy's name is Chuck Smith, but uh, made no plans whatsoever for his succession. Um, his last sermon was on a Sunday. He died the following Wednesday. You know, but made, just kind of left the church, you know, 
I mean, there were things that were somewhat in place, but, you know, to me it was, he acted as, and really if you listen to him, he talked as if he was going to, he had lung cancer. He talked as if he was going to beat it, and he was getting worse and worse and worse um, to where when his final sermons, he was preaching at the end of a 50-foot oxygen line, which to me was tragic, personally. Um, But, you know, it's water under the bridge. Um, so the, the idea of being aware of his own mortality, uh, really, I think is, is, this is an expression, uh, or Solomon is expressing himself where he's, is really becoming sobering to him. This, this might be one of the reasons why it's believed that he wrote this toward the end of his life. And he's like, you know, I've been wise all my life. I've done all these things. I'm still going to die. And then you have these foolish people who, who don't know, Two plus two equals, you know, they don't know, they don't know anything, right? And they're going to die as well. And he's, he's even trying to figure out, I think part of him might be saying that's not fair. Now, that's a speculation. It could be that he's saying that's not fair, which, you know, I, it drives me crazy when kids say that. But even more so when adults say that. And I know adults who still say that's not fair. Um, but you know, I'm reminded when I hear that, and at times I will remind them, it depends on whether I want to put it out there or not. Life isn't fair, you know, and, and, but, but life is intended for all of us to be born. And we'll see this in the next chapter. And then for all of us to die. Uh, that's the intention. Um, Never mind. Yeah, which we're going to get into that in just a second. But yeah, you're right. He's kind of like, okay. There was a lot of... Thank you. Um, Yeah, just, okay. It's one of those nights. Okay. Um... So he says, for there will be no remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does the wise man die as a fool? Which is true, correct? So it, it, really, it really brings us down to this idea that, um, that death is really this great equalizer. Which is, uh, it's, 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 I think it's, I think it's true. Number one, number two, I think it's very sobering. And a lot of people don't like to, they don't like to talk about these things. I mean, I, as I thought about this, we read it was well, Psalm forty-four last Sunday, right? Um, Psalm forty-four, right? And it, that did not have a happy ending. And in fact, there was no ending. You know, I call it the dangling participle, right? That just kind of leaves you hanging. You're waiting. You're waiting because, you know, you all have read the Bible before, right? And you know that the good guy at the end wins. And you're waiting to hear that at the end of the psalm. And a lot of the psalms will, in fact, do that. But this one didn't. It left you hanging. It left you in the lurch. Which, if you stop and think about it, 
when we go through trials, the bulk of our trials is being left in that limbo, if I want to use that term in, in a generic sense. We're really kind of left in limbo. We're kind of left hanging. We're kind of waiting and waiting. And, and um, in, fact, in reading some of what the early Celtic Christians wrote about, that was their whole uh, focus on prayer was not to bring all these things to God and he's going to work it all out and doggone it, it's going to be great and, you know, everything's going to be fine. Uh, but it was this, this sense of very intense waiting on God. And yes, bringing those things before him, but having a real sense of waiting and just being before him and, and, and wanting to really to spend time with God and their posture was always at that of waiting and just being one who waited on the Lord. And, and uh, so he begins, what's interesting here is in verse 16, 17, I have a little bit of a shift, not much. Is therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Now, remember, and I mentioned this already once, he's talking about things under the sun. He's not talking about things over the sun. Do you understand the difference? So he's talking about the things of this world. And it, I think it's important to understand that. And, and that's why I'm like, Okay, first of all, is this inspired scripture? I believe it is. So, I think he is looking at this from the vantage point of the Spirit of God breathing in. God breathes, 2 Timothy 3.16. Breathing into him these observations. And, and he says that, that he actually hated life. Um, and I, uh, I looked up the word hate because I was like, wow, it's a strong word. And guess what it means? It means hate. <laughs> but it's, it's, also, it's a very broad word, okay? It's a very broad word. Um, and and uh, it, it also brings out this idea of, of divine, bringing out this sense of divine Outrage is often used in that context. This idea of a godly outrage. We call it indignation, or some people call it righteous indignation. But indignation means righteous anger. So when you call it righteous indignation, you're calling it righteous, righteous anger. But anyway, um, yeah. Um, but but that, that's what, what, what he's really working with uh, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. And, and really this dealing with this idea of, of, of this incredible, unsettled place in your heart. Does that make sense? When things are that distressing, you're just like, where you have no resolution. You ever been there? Where you've had no res- resolution? I, I think though, there, though, some of those things happen to each and every one of us, 
And there are times that we never get resolution, I don't think. You're still kind of left with that end of Psalm 44 where like, okay, you know, and to me it was fascinating in that Psalm because he's like, you're judging us and we haven't done anything to deserve it. Essentially, that's what he was saying at the end of Psalm 44, if you remember it. And so, um, he says, for all is vanity and grasping at the wind. Now, I thought of this a little bit, a little bit. This idea of grasping means something to be of, excuse me, something to be in desire of, something that you desire. Uh, It really means the study of a thing, the study of something, right? You all follow me on this? Okay, what does the wind represent in Scripture? Is he possibly speaking poetically here? He's using this metaphor of grass. Now, have you ever tried the grass of the wind? Uh, If you have, please don't admit it. Uh, How's that? Um, But, ooh, there you go. All right. (laughs) Yeah, that used to be fun. Yeah, (laughs) you know. um, I, I knew a guy who told me a story of one of his friends always had the arm out the window and always hovered over that left, uh, the left side of the road, right on the yellow line. And he passed a guy coming the opposite way, doing the same exact thing. They hit each other. <laughs> Broke his arm. But uh, that wasn't quite grasping the wind. But yeah, I mean, grabbing the wind as you're driving. And, and, but it, it's, it's the spirit. Think back on John chapter 3. We'll get there in a month or three in Sundays. The spirit goes where, the wind goes where it blows. You cannot tell where it's going. And you cannot tell, well, actually, you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So as it is with the spirit and those who are born of the spirit. And does that mean, okay, think about those two passages. Does that mean that the spirit of God believed in the things that don't make sense? To us, well, I thought he's not the author of confusion. <laughs> that was really plain <laughs> and clear. Let me give you a suggestion. Your mileage may vary. Therefore, I hated of life because of the work that was done under the sun and was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping of the wind. In other words, is he possibly saying that the Holy Spirit is making him aware of this thing, but he just has no idea what to do with it? It's possible. That concept is prevalent in the book of Job. seems very prevalent right here. Lamentations, your favorite book, um, it seems very prevalent right here. Yeah, Lamentations is the same way. Psalm 44, I could feel it in the whole room when we got done. It was like, wow, that was really a downer for everybody, you know. 
Some of the looks on a few of your faces, I remember now. It's like, wow. Okay, let's uh, let's sing another song. You know, <laughs> you know. But uh, um, but really, part of walking in faith means that we may have to accept some uncertainty. And in fact, one writer said that the opposite of faith was not doubt, but certainty. I'm not sure I would go quite that far with it, but I think it, it was something to, to, to give some thought to. Uh, not, not a commentator for this passage, but, but, but the reality is that if it, part of the idea of stepping out in faith means I don't really have this all figured out. And that makes it really difficult makes it difficult for you. It makes it even more difficult when you're trying to explain it to somebody else. And that could be where, where he's going here. But then he goes here again in verse 18, where he says, Therefore, I, um, or not therefore, then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. So I'm going to leave it to my son. Now, one of the, one of the commentators, he speculated that perhaps he was already seeing the deficiencies in Rehoboam's life which he didn't have the most successful reign. But then again, he, one, Solomon was a hard act to follow. Two, Solomon didn't set him up for success, if you read it in 1 Kings. But perhaps he's already seeing things in Rehoboam. Now, verses 18 through 21, okay, it's basically in two subunits. In other words, it's Hebrew parallelism kind of saying the same things differently. Does that make sense? That's, that's a, a poetic expression of Hebrew writing. It's called parallelism. For example, it was a very hot day today would be one way of saying it was a very hot day today. I spent most of the day indoors because it was warm. Outside, that would be another way of saying it was a very hot day today. That's that's the idea of parallelism, and that wasn't the best example, but it was off the top of my head. Um, but but he 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 begins with a with a lament, and basically in the it, it, literal translations, I hated all my toil, and I began to despair about all my toil. And the reason for his lament is I have to turn over the fruit of my labor uh, to the hands of my successor. So he concludes with this is all fruitless, vanity. This is all point, uh, profitless. I think I know what you're asking. So I was waiting for, okay, so let me, let me answer what I think you're asking. He's saying that the whole process of him doing the work of him passing it on to see that work deteriorate 
That whole process is vanity. He's not necessarily, I don't think he's saying that, gee, I must be vain if I feel this way. I think he's saying, you know, I've done all this work. Well, it's like, I, I, well, for example, we, years ago, we, the company I worked for, we did the uh, Stanislaus County uh, Welfare Department. It was a brand new building. And one coat of primer, one coat of finish. And, the, but after six months, because there's a lot of construction going on after it's painted. After six months, the place looked like they had raised goats in there in the evenings. I mean, I looked at, and that's what I said. And we had to go through and repaint the whole interior. What he's saying is this whole process, he's like, well, why would I do all this if all they're going to do is ruin it? Which is different than putting another coat of paint on, okay? So we're both out of that one, right? And, but in, his, in, his, in the words that he's using here, um, that I must leave it to a man who must come after me, and whether he's going to be a fool or if he's going to be wise, uh, yet he will rule over my labor in which I have toiled and which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Um, what he's really saying here, this is like an, it's like an injustice. You know, of, I mean, he built the temple, and the temple eventually, guess what? Defiled. Now, why did he build the temple? Come on, you know this. History. Because God called him to build the temple, all right? So it was, it was in the plan of God for that, that Solomon would build the temple. Um, so here's the thing is this idea of building a legacy. You ever heard that term? Right? The legacy of the farm. The legacy of the ceiling. Well, maybe not. But anyway, we took it a bit too far. Well, you know... Um, because you're building a legacy that might not stand, that might not continue. A couple examples. The church that Mary and I grew up in, the pastor who did our wedding took another church in Northern California. Well, it's not really Northern California unless you live there. You think it's Northern California, but it's the Bay Area. Uh, that's really Central California, right? And... But he took a church right outside of Travis Air Force Base, which is where I got stationed. So that was where we lived. So our pastor in Southern California became our pastor in Central California. Um, And uh, he was lamenting one day because the church in Orange County that we'd grown up in, that it had gone downhill. And the new guy was not like the old guy. So a lot of the old guard in the church, they left, right? It's very typical, unfortunately. Um, and uh, he, was, he was complaining in some respects, and I, and I just listened. And, you know, I didn't want to weigh in a whole lot on this anyway. But, but it was, uh, and I, that church is still very small today. Matter of fact, recently, uh, some people we know went to that church, and they were complaining about how small it is today. And it, interestingly enough, it might be the healthiest spiritually it's ever been. And this was 
a fairly good, well, for Southern Baptist churches in Orange County in the 70s, it was a fairly good-sized church. Um, but there was this lamentation of the legacy has been destroyed. Uh, and, and not necessarily the case. Um, so he's talking about all these, the building, all the, everything done under the sun, the building of the buildings, the work that he's done, the establishment and the enlargement of the borders of the nation, the infrastructure, which, by the way, he, he had all this stuff built because he essentially ascribed to slave labor, so he violated Torah having it done. Not necessarily the temple, but all these other projects. And he taxed the daylights out of the people in order to accomplish all this, right? So I'm, I'm wondering how much is he really seeing the full deck of cards here? You know, you know what I'm saying? How is he, is he truly seeing this for all that it's really worth? But, but is he being wise in the eternal sense? You see, these are questions to think about. Is he being wise in the internal sense, or is he just being wise in the temporal sense? You know, you've heard the phrase where, you know, you win the battle but lose the war. That's, that's usually an, an illustration of someone who is wise in the temporal, the, the temporary sense, not in the permanent eternal sense. Uh, but here's the thing. Is it wisdom to ask these questions? Or perhaps he is inspired by this limited scope for a very divine reason. But he's still a spoiled rich kid. Yes, but, but, but is, is, is he being divinely led just to focus on this perspective on everything under the sun, right? I know you're, I know you're, I, I felt you. No, you're what, I'm going to call on you anyway. Um, uh, is he being divinely inspired? And I don't know the answer to that. It's, it's one of the things that I'm trying to work through. So go ahead. Well, yeah, it, there almost seems to be a little bit more of a settling in that this is the way it is. You know, I, I was talking with somebody who's sitting here uh, not too long ago, and we we're just talking about the current state of affairs, and it's my opinion, and I'm not real optimistic, but it's my opinion that this is going to be the way it is probably for the rest of our lifetime in one way, shape, or form. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Everything. Everything in such, I don't know how, I don't, I don't see a way out of this culturally, politically, socially, economically, uh, morally, should I keep going, religiously, theologically. Yeah, I don't, you know. Um, so, I'm gonna, so the shift is really in verse 24 through 26, which we only have a few minutes, so I want to try to get there. But because now he's starting to become positive in that he's starting to at least, I think, come to terms with some of this. Now, let me read, let me go through real fast through some of this, and then we'll get, go to 24. For there was a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, 
yet he must leave the, his heritage. He must leave his heritage. That's an important point. And that's what you talked about with the farm and maybe the ceiling. But anyway, what uh, with the farm. And he will leave his heritage um, to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Now, this word evil, uh, when I looked it up, guess what it meant? It meant evil. But it can also mean a misfortune, a calamity, a wickedness. Uh, It could also be talking about things that are repulsive or things that are bad. Uh, So I don't know if he's really speaking morally here. Because the question is, is it wrong to leave things for your kids? There is the idea of caring for the posterity that might be inter- that could be interpreted in some of those verses that I think you're referring to. I knew a guy who he contacted me and he was from the Twin Cities area, and he and his wife determined that they were going to spend all their kids' inheritance. Every single one of it. And so he wanted to come and talk to you all about that. That was a few years ago. You can probably guess what my response to him was. Um, because no, he never, he never made it here. And I was just like, I just felt like if that's what you're, if that's what you're leading with, you know, hi, my Pastor Bob, and I'm spending all my kids' inheritance. You know, that's, that's your introduction. What else, what else are you going to tell us? You know, so, you know, and whatever you do with your money is your money. It's not my money. I, I don't care. Because um, you can't, you, you never see a U-Haul following a hearse, right? And so, and he, you, you know, he, he's got more money and more women than he knows what to do with. So he can't spend it all, right? All right? It, everything that he wanted, he's already been able to accomplish and fulfill. Talking about what he has done, how he is going to pass it on. You know, when he's still alive, you know? And uh, basically all that Roboam wants to do is play video games. Well, maybe not, but anyway. That's, that's, that's almost what I'm hearing here. Almost. But let, let's finish. Um, Here's the huge shift. Okay, 23. For all his days are sorrowful, and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. And I hear this over and over again from people who own their own businesses. They never turn it off. They never turn it off. They're always thinking work. And and even at night, they're thinking, well, i got to get up tomorrow morning and go to somebody's house and do something right it's always there so then the shift takes place in verse 24 nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor this also i saw was from the hand of god so he's flipping back from given the backside of what we read in chapter 1 verse 13 where he says um 
I have set my heart to seek and search out wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. So what is he saying in verse 24? Nothing is better. So he's, he's flipped here. Now he's talking about the positive. Nothing is better for a man should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy the good of his labor, which is from the hand of God. For who can eat? Let's see, personal experience here, Clay. Who can eat uh, and who can have enjoyment more than I? I think that's one of the things he's saying, yes. Uh, because here, and I was talking with a friend of mine, actually today, um, and he's trying to make some major decisions about his ministry. I'll just leave it at that, right? And he may do a, anyway. Um, in everything in life, there's a mixture of good and bad. 